chapter eight parts two through four section one of a defence of idealism by may sinclair this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter eight conclusions part two throughout the foregoing metaphysical discussion one point must have struck the unmetaphysical reader as it certainly strikes the mere writer that a good half of the problems under consideration arose solely from the limitations of language we can argue with perfect propriety as to whether things are or are not out of time and out of space and whether one body is or is not outside another body and whether it is a part or a whole and if a part whether of this whole or that of things occupying space we can argue as to whether they run parallel to each other or not or whether they stand at the circumference or the centre but when it comes to discussing whether things are inside or outside of consciousness whether consciousness is a part or a whole whether if it runs it runs parallel with physical processes or runs altogether in some other manner whether if it stands it stands at the circumference or the centre and whether consciousness stands or runs at all it seems almost obvious that we are being made the victims of our own metaphors idealists and realists seem to have suffered most from the confusion that results when the idealist says that the world arises in consciousness quite palpably he lies but when the realist says that consciousness arises in the world he is no nearer to the truth when he says that the world exists outside consciousness he can only mean that it exists outside his body when he says consciousness is a part of his pluriverse and not the whole what he means or should mean is that his body is a part of it again when the idealist says that consciousness is the centre of his universe again palpably he lies not because he has said too much but because he has said too little for when the realist swears by all his realities that consciousness stands at the circumference he is perjured when he reveals his pluriverse as an infinite number of entities mutually repellent yet coexisting even interpenetrating much as the infinite planes of space interpenetrate each other he may be getting at the truth of the matter as nearly as his spectacular methods will allow him but when he invites you to consider consciousness as only one of those entities standing to all the others in the relation of a spectator to a spectacle then in spite of all the useful distinctions that he makes between things in space and time and things out of space and time it is clear that he is visualizing consciousness as somehow occupying both if we once grasp the utter irrelevance of all this symbolic language as applying to consciousness and the relation of subject to object half the difficulties in accepting some conscious principle as the ultimate reality will have disappeared and the pluralist claim to have decentralized philosophy falls through after this the unphilosophic reader will perhaps see no reason why the idealist lamb should not lie down by the pluralist lion but the reason is clear enough the lamb does not do the smallest damage to the lion he does not interfere with any one of his adventures it is the lion that will not consent to live and let live the prestige of spirit is seriously endangered by the restrictions realism has laid on it but reality is not one whit the worse because idealism chooses to regard spirit as its source 
it is no more a dance of bloodless categories than it was before existence remains as full-blooded and gorgeously coloured as variegated and multitudinous as everlastingly exciting mysterious and surprising whether you call it the manifestation of spirit or a collection of ultimate realities the only question that concerns us is which theory is the more likely to be true we found that on a balance of the reasoned evidence we had some grounds for supposing spiritualistic monism more likely to be true than pluralistic realism and no valid grounds for supposing it to be false but if the reasoned evidence had failed us so far as to leave the balance even we should not then have despaired for we found a mass of evidence over and above which whether we regard it as springing from a higher and purer or from a lower and more troubled source than reason is not altogether to be gainsaid we found that one of our oldest deepest and most enduring possessions is the sense of the unseen we saw it grow from a primitive sense a blind and savage instinct to a transcendent spiritual passion we distinguished between the higher and the lower forms of mysticism we found that when criticism had done its worst it was possible to separate the purer from the baser elements of the same emotion and that after the most implacable analysis there remained something indestructible irreducible indefinable bearing its own peculiar certainty at the same time we acknowledged that the certainty of spiritual instinct is one thing and the certainty of reason is another and that the highest degree of certainty can only be reached when at all points the two corroborate and support each other such a degree of certainty we are very far from having reached though at some points we may have found this corroboration and support part three we have now to find the bearing of our conclusions such as they are on the question of personal immortality before we can do this however we shall have to consider certain evidence from other sources sources that we have left so far unexplored first of all there is the huge mass of that so-called evidence which the society for psychical research makes it its business to investigate and sift the evidence drawn from the communications of mediums from automatic writing from cross correspondence the alleged apparitions of the departed materializations and veridical dreams i do not propose to investigate and sift this evidence all over again people who are interested in spiritualism critically or otherwise should study the literature of the subject for themselves when they have read and digested the journals and proceedings of the society up to date and the records of foreign organizations devoted to the same adventure together with mr f w myers on human personality and sir oliver lodge's raymond they had better read mr frank podmore's studies in psychical research also i shall therefore be very brief briefly then we shall do well to distinguish between what are broadly speaking two kinds of evidence indirect communications made through mediums with their accompanying apparitions or materializations and direct communications made spontaneously and without any apparent machinery of suggestion such as veridical dreams and apparitions seen without the help of mediums under both these heads there is an enormous body of perfectly well authenticated testimony borne by irreproachable persons some of it but only a very little has even been brought forward by sceptical and indifferent persons persons without any interest in the result one way or another 
briefly again i think there cannot be a doubt in the mind of any unprejudiced person that both through the agency of mediums and otherwise things happen things that are not explainable by any trickery things interesting enough and even uncanny enough to charm the most fastidious lover of the occult unfortunately lovers of the occult are very seldom hampered in their researches by overfastidiousness. the question is what happens take the regular spiritualistic phenomena first mrs piper say seems to be giving messages from the spirits of mr myers or dr verall their authenticity seems to be sufficiently attested by allusions to intricate and subtle points of scholarship said to be known only to dr verall and mr myers the automatic writer writes words that she herself would never have dreamed of as if under an irresistible and supernatural compulsion what she has written tallies with something said to be known only to the departed hands are certainly seen to be waving where human hands are not bunches of flowers and even still more solid objects materialize apparently from nowhere out of nothing it cannot all be fraud all the time though some of it may be sometimes exposure in ninety-nine cases affords no absolutely valid grounds for denying that the hundredth case may be genuine what then is going on so far as psychical research has been carried yet i cannot see that even under the most carefully prepared test conditions there is an atom of evidence to show that what is going on is an actual communication or effort at communication of the discarnate with the incarnate it may be so but until we have eliminated every possible source of suggestion from the living we have no right to assume an even remote suggestion from the other side and to ensure this test condition we should have to exterminate the living the test will not be water-tight until the communicant is alone with the communicator and then there will only be his word for it on this side whatever spiritualism may be telepathy is a fact and whatever the precise limits and possibilities of telepathy may be we have not yet discovered them can we be sure that the things said to be known only to the discarnate are not among the subconscious memories of the communicant or of some person present at the seance or that they are not known by any living mind on earth nothing in the annals of psychical research is more astonishing than the series of cross-correspondences in the case of mrs holland and mrs verall mrs holland in india received by automatic writing one half of a supposed communication the other half was received by mrs verall in england neither making sense by itself the two writers were unacquainted and each was unaware of what the other was doing the perfect dovetailing of the fragments could not be accounted for on any theory of coincidences the two writings clearly dealt with the same context for quotations from certain known poems broken off or garbled in one fragment were completed or emended by the other here the test conditions were all that could be desired it was a manifest case of tapping a wireless yet who could say that the probability of wireless from the living was ruled out the state of desire and expectancy in which all these efforts to communicate are made renders the minds of the investigators peculiarly open to suggestion and an extremely important point the more transparently honest the mind the more passive it will be therefore the more open and if the messages are suspect what shall we say of the manifestations in these cases how can we possibly rule out suggestion certain experiments have been made by Janet and his son on their patients at the salpetriere 
which show that both positive and negative hallucinations can be produced by suggestion the patient that is to say can be made not only to see things that are not there and to behave as if they were there but not to see things that are there and to behave as if they were not there both hallucinations remaining intact until the experimenter releases the enchanted one from her enchantment and not only eminent alienists but obscure amateurs have done as much why then should not the magic of the medium be equally effective why should not an expert suggester create both positive and negative hallucinations at will is it a question of pocketing the sendings and taking them home with you why should he not introduce into the blankly innocent scene all the paraphernalia of materialization he requires by simply inhibiting the perception of them until the moment comes for handing round the evidential trophies this would account for the indubitably solid objects the plaster casts of spirit hands the flowers the little girls and the teaspoons which have figured at certain twentieth-century seances however this may be if psychical researchers are not increasing their knowledge of the other side they are preparing excellent material for psychologists on this side the other sort of evidence the direct and spontaneous sort is i think in rather better case it would be stupid to deny that there have been well authenticated apparitions and so-called veridical dreams which appeal to our belief because of their directness and spontaneity by the fact that they have come to people who were not looking for them in many cases to people who would have gone out of their way to avoid them if they had known that they were coming the sudden unexpectedness of these encounters through the veridical dream and the valedictory apparition is in their favour but here again the possibility of telepathy between the living is by no means ruled out so far if i am not mistaken most of the verified or verifiable instances of apparitions have occurred not after death but before it or at the actual moment of passing and cannot be taken as evidence of survival the vision of the dead body may be explained by suggestion from the living attendants of the dead so may the instance of the dream that comes true and there is always coincidence there remain certain also well authenticated cases of the continuous apparition the ghost that haunts it seems hardly likely that they are all the products of a disordered brain or a habit of mendacity but i have never come across any more satisfactory explanation of them we may invent hypotheses to account for them for instance that the impact of all visible and audible events is continued in an infinite series of finer and finer vibrations the swing as it were of infinitely divisible etheric particles so that long after the date of the original event its ghostly simulacra are seen or heard by senses pitched to their rates of vibration but even if some unforeseen discovery in physics were to give encouragement to this theory it would involve a corresponding theory of an infinite series of finer and finer senses pitched to the finer and finer vibrations and even if this received encouragement from psychology we should still be no nearer knowing why some of these events should be perceived and not others and we should be as far as ever from any evidence of survival there is yet another very ancient and widespread belief on which many people still found their hope of personal immortality the belief in reincarnation if the belief itself were well founded it would be as good a foundation as we could wish to have if we have lived many times before there is to say the least of it an antecedent probability that we shall live again 
there would even be no reason why we should ever stop living now there are three theories of reincarnation and two of them are mutually exclusive one is primitive and savage one ancient and pseudo-metaphysical one modern and if not scientific fairly well founded on scientific grounds according to the primitive and savage belief we are all reincarnations of the dead ghosts are germs and germs are ghosts as the flower and the corn return to earth we return the ghosts of the newly dead hang about in woods and at crossroads for choice waiting for women to pass by that they may enter their bodies and be born again the places where they hang about are haunted places according to the second and most fascinating form of the belief which involves the doctrine of karma we are born again and again as full-blown human individuals breaking through the knitted chain of the generations at points that may be divided by many ages according to the third we have been incarnate again and again in the bodies of our parents and our ancestors in such sort that the chain of generation is never broken this as we have seen is the doctrine of panpsychism observe that both the primitive and the modern theory are the most satisfactory and courageous in tackling the crux of reincarnation its modus operandi the theory of karma leaves this essential part of the problem altogether too vague and i am bound to confess that it is the savage who scores in simplicity and precision but it is the theory involving karma that people mean when they talk about reincarnation it exerts an irresistible fascination for certain temperaments that would be repelled by the panpsychism of samuel butler or of anybody else the belief has been for ages the actual living belief of millions in india china and japan in spite of its inherent difficulties it is still more or less sincerely held by many perfectly sane people in europe and america at the present day you used to meet them at the ritz or rumpelmeyer's it was in the days before the war when they would tell you as a matter of course that they remembered being a dancer at the court of amenhotep the third or the queen consort of ashurbanipal or a concubine of sennacherib or a priestess in the temple of krishna or a great hetera of the age of pericles the odd thing is that the reincarnated have always been something royal or hieratic or improper something sufficiently afar from the sphere of their sorrow eastern or egyptian preferred something whatever it may be that they are not now and they expect you to believe them they are not content to have taken part in the thousand or the million incarnations of their own ancestors in a thousand or a million experiences they are not content with their thousandth or their millionth share in the adventures of the dancer at the court of amenhotep the third they want all the adventure to themselves it is the full-blown dancing individual they claim to have been and the plain facts of biology are all against it you cannot thus break through the unbroken chain of the generations the difficulty for the devotees of this form of reincarnation is not that there is no proof that they have never lived before but that there is too much proof that they have never stopped living they have never escaped from the chain until the day when they were born as the individual they are now End of chapter 8, parts 2 through 4, section 1, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.